0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Clarissa Pincola estes This is the second part of our conversation on the dangerous old woman, myths and stories of the wise woman archetype. Dr. Clarissa Pinkola-Estes is an internationally recognized scholar, award-winning poet, diplomat, senior Jungian psychoanalyst, and contadora, keeper of the old stories in the Latina tradition. CPE, as I call Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, or Dr. E, as many others refer to her, recorded Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype, a book that became an international bestseller. She recorded it, it sounds true, in 1989, which was three years before the book ever reached bookstores or even found its way into the hands of publishers. Now, CPE is launching her masterwork, over three decades in the writing, The Dangerous Old Woman, Myths and Stories of the Wise Woman Archetype, as an online event series at Sounds True, beginning on April 6th. In anticipation of this new online event series, here's the second part of my conversation with CPE about The Dangerous Old Woman. C.P.E., when I think of the image of a dangerous old woman, the way that I've heard you describe her, someone who can't be stopped, somebody who will speak her mind, that kind of thing. I I imagine, you know, an old woman on a motorcycle or an old woman with a hatchet or something like that. (laughs) That's what, that's what, what I see. And yet the image of the tree you you have this phrase that uh, i'll always remember this tree has stood many winters the image of a tree for the dangerous old woman it communicates different qualities than the motorcycle woman with a hatchet so uh, i'm wondering you know my my image there but i'm wondering if you can help me understand this image of the tree well first of all I, <laughs> Uh, I would
1: say when I was a little girl, I married a tree. I held a wedding ceremony and married the an oak tree that was in the forest right behind our, our little house. Uh, I have loved trees like fire. I love, love. that the being near trees was the most calming, uh, inspiring, um, heartfelt uh, I understand trees as mothers and fathers, that they literally nurture us. And I don't mean just scientifically, you know, in terms of providing oxygen, which is one of the most merciful things they could possibly do in a culture like ours that loves to pollute the atmospheres. Trees uh, have always felt like they are beings. When I read about the ants, E-N-T-S, you know, in um, Tolkien's work, uh, as a moving forest of living trees who actually would go to battle to protect innocence and in life I felt like, oh that's exactly right that is exactly the way trees are um, in the old country where my parents came from my father the big trees were guardian trees there was no village that didn't have guardian trees at the beginning they um, literally would say that the leaves in the trees or the needles in the evergreens would change the sound of the wind blowing through them if people were coming from a distance walking or on wagon or horseback. That the trees were the guardian trees and they would alert everyone to who was coming or what was coming next. They also planted their trees on the opposite side of the road from their houses so that the um, trees, so the flowers and that will grow in shade to be picked for the church ceremonies and the little long processions that they will have to their tiny little churches. Um, this village that my father grew up in was 46 families, so 46 houses, little farmhouses that they made themselves out of mud and, and whitewash um, so that the flowers will grow there so they'll, they will be able to praise Creator and all the saints every day without having to go very far from the house. And they'll have trees in the yard that in the summertime would provide coolness for inside the house that already had very thick walls. And then in the wintertime, as the house faced south on a bluff, that they would lose their leaves. And then the warmth of the winter sun, which came at low angles across the plains, would come right into the windows and light the house in the dark of winter. So... The idea of trees being the essential part of life, rather than some extraneous decoration out on someone's lawn, is how I grew up. That we relied on the peach trees and the cherry trees and the plum trees and the apple trees for real nourishment. That we would handpick all of their fruits and then we would can them in the heat of the summer. <laughs> the so steam rising in the kitchen and everyone's taking more and more of their clothes off because it's so hot in the kitchen and we'll sterilize all the glass jars and put up all the fruit and then i will line it up on the shelves in the cellar that they will glow gold and red and yellow in the winter time when you go down there in the dark they're so beautiful and glistening so the trees were considered our helpers and our mothers our fathers, our sisters, our brothers and when trees were ill, no one would think of cutting a tree down. You would treat the tree very much like I would treat a person. You would wrap the broken limb. You, I remember one time living in the city just not many years ago, when some of the limbs of trees, young trees, broke, people wanted to just cut the limb off instead of grafting around it, you know, with bandages and a poultice of mud to put energy into the healing of that wound because trees will grow scar tissue that actually has little canals in it so the nourishment can still run up and down the tree Mm -hmm. Um, if you give it the attention. So in The Dangerous Old Woman as in women who run with the wolves the motif was wolves uh, canines in the dangerous old woman the motif that runs throughout the manuscript are trees on the beauty that they are and the graciousness that they are and what they teach us and also though what travails they go through and they are what I call SS, still standing and (laughs) like us just like us and they're all scarred up I mean look at any tree that has any age to it at all and even young trees you know the lawnmower clonked into it down at the base or you know somebody ripped its suckers off that are trying to grow out of the bottom or the lower half of the tree and so stripped the bark and the other you know insects will come other injuries will come to the tree and the trees always develop tissue around the scar so you see the scar but the tree compensates and continues on nonetheless. And I have pictures of trees that I've collected over the years that literally are growing through chain-link fences, that are growing into uh, concrete pipes and out the other side, that are growing in the middle of an asphalt highway, that these trees are intrepid beings. And the, their only enemy is ours, really, is extreme, extreme, extreme weather and human beings. So most trees, however, do just fine, no matter how scarred up they get, and us too. So in that respect, for instance, one of the stories that um, I tell about, about the late bloomer, uh, late blooming is... An important aspect. I think all of us are late bloomers in one way or another. Uh, you're a late bloomer if you raise children, because your children, you might say, become your whole creative life in many ways. You're a late bloomer if you have been working for a living in an area that is not kind to your soul. Then someday, because you change livelihoods or you find your way out or you run for daylight, as we say you then have a chance to develop a whole side of your gifts or all of them or any of them in a way you never have before. And the tree, one of the trees that is a late bloomer is actually a cactus. And um, It's called a soguaro. And it is the cactus that is most often shot by people with shotguns in the desert because it looks like a human being. It holds its arms up. It has a trunk, a long, tall trunk. They grow 30, 40 feet high sometimes. But the peculiarity about the sojuaro, besides the fact that it's a home for so many birds and creatures inside of it, and the fact that it keeps water inside of it through its thick, spiny ridges, all those miracles are part of the sojuaro, but the most interesting part is it neither gets its arms or flowers for many years, no matter how tall it grows. So it can become a mature plant, and it can be 25 feet high, and just be a torso, a long torso without arms. Or it can be um, 30 years old, and never have these luscious, gorgeous, cream-colored Juicy blossoms that grow on the very, very top of its head and the very tips of its arms on its fingertips. It goes on and on, and what it's doing is it's gathering energy and time. It has a destiny, you might say, that's born into it. It's hugely gifted. The flowers are already there, but they are in a genome form, and that genome form takes years to develop. Uh, many of the saguaro do not get their arms until they're 30 years old or older, and they do not flower for that many years either. But once they do, once they do, then as I said, their greatest threat is extreme weather, lightning strike for instance, which for us could be something like, you know, I've been ill unto death twice in my life, and uh, that could be considered a lightning strike. It, It Makes you lose capacity at least for a while, and then you have to build up again. Or human beings who decide to use you for target practice. In other words, they criticize, they poke, they prod, they you know they entertain themselves at your expense. But nonetheless, you know the saguaro lives on with bullet holes. It lives on. <laughs> it lives on with so many, so many attacks to it. It is SS. It is still standing. And the late bloomer woman and man is like that too. It is inside of us in genome form in the psyche to develop all of our gifts. Sometimes it really is a matter of time. We're gathering strength. We're gathering the right moment, the right atmosphere, the right soil to plant ourselves in, the right root system. And one day, what never showed above ground before Suddenly begins to grow. And we nurture it then. However, there are circumstances that we ourselves can allow to interfere with that process. And that's why I like this story, The Emperor's New Clothes. Now, you know, the story is often told like, okay, so the Emperor was conceited. And so these guys came and they said, we're going to make you a beautiful suit of clothes, but they really were um, con men. And so they pretended to make a suit of clothes, but the emperor, because he was so conceited, he couldn't see through them. And then he decided when all the clothes were done, he was going to have a big parade. And so he marched out either in his underwear or fully naked and a little child in the crowd points at him as everybody else is bowing and scraping and salaaming to him because he's the emperor and they are afraid that he will uh, punish them if they disrespect him or tell the truth and the little child says but you're not wearing any clothes yeah that's how the story is usually told however in our family this, which is a you know ethnic deeply ethnic family that couldn't most of them couldn't read or write the have an oral tradition which is to tell stories on they not only tell stories, they don't tell them the way they run in the books that are written about stories. And the Grimm brothers, as you know, uh, took stories from storytellers who were exactly like the family I grew up in. They were unschooled people, often farmers, or what people called peasants back then, who uh, had these fabulous stories they were carrying. And so the Grimm brothers went and listened to the stories, and wrote them down and then took them back home and rewrote them and they rewrote them according to their religious and their socio-economic ideas of the time. And so you get really, literally, it is Grimm's version of the fairy tales, but if you hear them from the old people, especially people who come right off the dirt, who come right, you know, off the ground where you pull your food out of the ground every day, they are... Uh, slightly different stories, so in our family, the emperor's old new clothes is told with the emphasis on the fact that people are afraid that it isn 't conceit of the Emperor that causes him to go blind to those who take advantage of him and who actually cut off his avenues to showing his true gifts that it's fear of being thought inferior and it's fear of being criticized. It's fear of being found wanting, inadequate, in other words. And you know that all of us humans, it's built into us for survival to fear being found inadequate or to be rejected. It's, It's put into us because we tend to be tribal people, familial people who enjoy and like to work together with others at least in a, at a distance up closer or a little bit farther away that's comfortable for us. Um, so to be rejected means to be shunned from the tribe, which means we become a lone animal, we become an exile who has no one to depend on except ourselves, and we are vulnerable because we have no circle of protection. Or to be found inadequate means at least somewhere in ancient memory in us, that we will not be rewarded with food, that we will not be rewarded with clean water, that we will not be rewarded with relationship, that we will be considered inferior and therefore unworthy to be fed. And there are many fairy tales about that um, that start out with the child, for instance, being thought hopeless or um, being impaired in some way and therefore they decide to starve the child to death. So, this story of the emperor's new clothes is that the emperor actually sees and is a wonderful, delightful person, jovial and full of life, but he has taken on the trappings of being the emperor. and And he's... Then when he's in his private chambers, he's all funny and fun and silly and creative and inventive and constantly making up things and having people laugh and enjoying himself and and having all kinds of wonderful plans for how the kingdom will be one day if he could only get people to agree with him. And the minute he steps outside his chambers and he goes into the court, he takes on all the trappings physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually that he's expected to have. So he's not allowed to be frivolous, which is part of imagination, as you know. He's not allowed to say things that are on his mind because, you know, that's not necessarily, you know, people won't respect you if you do that. He is allowed to be angry. He is allowed to be punitive. He is allowed to say who should go where. But he's not allowed to love, he's not allowed to be vulnerable, he's not allowed to be hurt, he's not allowed to be alive. So here come these two tailors, and they say, you know what, uh, we see this guy, he's really afraid to be himself, let's take advantage of him. So they approach the emperor and they say, emperor, look. We have this beautiful material that we have gotten at great cost. It's filigreed with gold and silver. It has little tiny golden bells on it. It is the most beautiful. See here along the side is little lace. This is so beautiful. Look over here is little purple piping. Isn't that beautiful? And look over here, just a little tiny strip of ermine, you know, to, to just finish off the hem here. And isn't that all beautiful? And the emperor knows he can't see it. He can't see it, but he looks around at his court, his courtiers, his vizier, his generals, and he goes, ''Oh my God, I will be found unworthy. If I can't see this, everyone else can obviously see it.'' They're all going, Ooh, ah, ooh ah.'' And so the emperor says, ''Oh, I must have that immediately. You must make me a suit of clothing out of that beautiful, wondrous cloth.'' And all the court starts to applaud, you know, ''Oh, good. Oh, yes, it is so
0: beautiful.''
1: And they don't see anything either. But they too are afraid of losing their station in life. They are afraid of being found inadequate and therefore punished because they can't see it either. So meanwhile, the two cheats, they go away. And they pretend, you know, in full view of the whole court to sew and cut and trim and fit and to have the hanger there, the golden hanger with, you know, this beautiful, unseeable nonsense hanging from it. And everyone oozes and ahs over it every time it's shown in its next stage of development as this beautiful suit of clothes because no one can say there's nothing to that. There's nothing there. They're all afraid that they'll be found inadequate, that they'll be banished, that they'll be punished. So finally the day comes and the two cheats collect their bags of gold from the emperor who has misgivings incredible misgivings because he's saying to himself my God I am not fit for my station in life I'm here to govern the people with love and greatness with a vision that I carry and all this happening is I can't see what's right in front of me so the emperor goes through with the charade he dons the clothes that don't exist he marches through the streets with his whole retinue behind him. Everyone ooing and awing, and all the people of the kingdom bowing and applauding. As, oh, Emperor, Emperor, oh, what beautiful, oh, what beautiful clothes. And all of a sudden, in the story my family tells, there's an old woman. And the old woman points at the emperor and says, Emperor... You've forgotten to put your clothes on, the ones you are most worthy of. And the emperor, suddenly, the spell is broken. The emperor looks down at himself. He sees his naked legs. He sees his naked arms. He sees his naked chest. And as it's said in the family, he can't see much else than that because he has a big belly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... And he turns and he runs and his courtiers run after him trying to shield him and cover his body. Runs all the way back into the castle and calls for the old woman to come before him. The old woman is advised by everyone, don't go. He's going to punish. It's going to be off with your head. You are never going to come out of there. Once you go in there, you won't come out alive. The old woman says, No. No. I'm going because he needs my sight. And so she appears before the court and before the emperor. And the emperor says, I want you to tell me again what you told me before. I'll just say, Emperor, you're not wearing the clothes that are made for you and you alone, that are worthy of your station in life. And the Emperor Understands This means his thoughts, his feelings, his insights, his visions are not clothing his life so that he can express not only who he is but for the benefit of all others, for the benefit of all others because he is the ruler, he is the one who will make life decent and good in principle for all others around him. At the end of the story, the old woman is rewarded with the bags of money that were given to the two cheats who were hauled back in, found out, held before the emperor who banished them to a kingdom that in our family is called Eveshti. Eveshti is a place where you are constantly looking in the mirror and finding fault with yourself. Eveshti. So the Two cheats were banished to that part of the netherworld. On that is how the story of the Emperor's Clothes ends. As with awareness, of new awareness. In archetypal ideation, the idea of clothing is uh, the thoughts that we wear, the way we show ourselves to the world. It's a little bit like persona. It's a... Uh, let's see, like... Um, How people dress is how they often want you to know them. Uh, They will like to, you know, when when we will go to uh, interview for a job. One time, I went to interview for a job at a university to teach their very first psychology of women course. This was back in the was the first course that was taught of psychology of women in the whole Western United States, about 1975 or so. And I had this idea that there could be a psychology of women, imagine that. And there were other people across the world who were imagining the same thing at the same time, and it became a phenomenon. But I remember when I went for the interview, oh, I dressed so carefully in my polyester suit. (laughs) I oh, went on got at Goodwill and I uh, made sure that my skirt came down below my knees and that I looked ultra conservative you know it's and I had a hide briefcase you know that I had bought at had the Goodwill also you know the uh, chrome trim on it and I I'm sure I sort of look like a lady truck driver who just got off her truck but I was trying so hard to go I know what I'm talking about his Naga polyester suit. I think it was mint green, I hate to say, but I think it was. Uh, this person, I was trying to show not exactly who I was, but who I thought might pass through the needle most easily without being too much of a camel. <laughs> uh, when I look back at that time, um, I think they actually hired me because my idea was good, and I think they overlooked the fact that I was wearing <laughs> A mint green polyester suit with a Nagai portfolio with me. But that's what persona is. It's an idea we have about what will be most acceptable to other people. And in the late bloomer, the gifted woman, she often is wearing clothes that are non-existent, or don't fit right, are worn backward, are not telling the truth about what her gifts and talents really are. In other words, she's wearing ideas and speaking words, speaking words, making gestures, acting in certain ways, even having relationships and compatriots, comadres, copadres, in certain ways that don't really reflect what she really is made of, what her real visionary world is made of. And the way that I'll talk more about this in the Dangerous Old Woman webinar is how each aspect of that story shows us ways that we block or detain ourselves. The first one being, just as I told you, that the way you present yourself to the world, untruthfully, is one way of communicating in the psyche to yourself that I am unworthy as I am. I am not the visionary. I'm not the gifted person. I have to go forward in a crouch of some sort. I'll have to be defensive or defended. I will not be accepted unless, because I don't see the way other people see. And as you see in the Emperor's New Clothes, in one way you could say, you know, in street talk, the Emperor won't call BS when he sees it. You know? And I have to say that part of creative life is calling BS when you see it. If it isn't working, if the connection isn't right, if the vessel isn't right, you have to call it like it is and move on to the next so that you can unfurl your gifts freely in this world instead of butting up against the same obstacle over and over again. So that is a late bloomers conundrum, you might say. They'll have to come to terms with the cheats in the psyche, the ones who say, I'm going to make something look how beautiful it is, but it isn't really because it doesn't really exist. The part of the psyche, you might say, that wants something for nothing, that wants to be accomplished immediately. yeah. The part of the psyche that bows and scrapes and goes, oh yes, oh yes, but to the wrong people. And most of all, the old woman, the truth teller. To my spirit, it doesn't matter whether the story has a young child in it or an old woman, because an old woman and a child are almost identical. You remember Picasso said, when he was asked, you know, time and again, Picasso, who lived this, I mean, homemade life uh, to the extreme, and uh, um, you know, maybe something uh, could be said more for his lack of social development, but, but you know, he is uh, completely free as an inventor, as a creator. And he said, be like a child. Think like a child, draw like a child, act like a child, see like a child. And this is what the old woman does too. She has the, it's not exactly innocence, it's the wisdom of innocence to say it like it is. So just say it like it is. The old woman goes where she wants to, says what she wishes. No one should try to stop her because she carries this bounty, this huge bounty that actually helps things to proceed and progress rather than to stay stuck. So essentially the story of the emperor's New Clothes in The Dangerous Old Woman is about the thieves that thieve from us, thieve our creative lives that prevent our creative force from unleashing itself entirely. And there are, um, you might say, transitions that we all have in burgeoning creative life as late bloomers. Uh, But I would also say that there is uh, nothing... There is no such thing as too late. There isn't. I I thought I was going to go to law school about uh, three years ago. And I was accepted into law school. And after a little while, I realized that I had lost my mind. (laughs) (laughs) You know why I wanted to go to law school? I wanted to know the stories. Because all the precedents, all legal precedents, Supreme Court decisions, they're stories, just like dreams are stories, just like fairy tales. I, I love stories. But what I also <laughs> realized, in addition to learning some really wonderful things about the law, that it is not about wishful thinking, it's about what is, what I, what I learned was that I will have to turn off an enormous part of my psyche and my heart to only follow the way the law is learned, and the way the law is executed. And that I felt like that is not my gift. And I withdrew from law school. And I felt that what I wanted to do at law school in order to help other people could also be done without having a legal degree. And I determined that. But when I was about to go to law school you know I was going oh my god here I am I'm old you know and you know I might die before I finish law school and who knows what's going to happen and what I realized was that it was going to be four years of hard work almost full time work and that four years from now I was going to be as old as I was going to be regardless with or without a law degree so I might as well go to law school that's how I made the decision I might as well go. In other words, my age, my delicate health, my all the other challenges I have in life, were not part of the consideration. The only consideration is, I want to learn. I want to learn and I feel compelled to go learn this. And if I finish, I finish. And if I don't finish, I don't finish. But I will learn. And so that's what I did. So I will say, that's one example in my own life of being a late bloomer. It, uh It was an idea I've had for many, many decades to be able to have the power to help to change things at the federal level especially in terms of human rights and civil rights. So these aspects in the idea of late blooming, I feel are right on time. I don't think they're too late. I don't think they're too early. I think so many things that happen in life are destiny. And um, we catch up with destiny in other words we learn to feel it and feel the you know, might say nudges behind our shoulders or the pushes at our waist to move forward in this particular direction and many people um, don't feel strong directive pushes they feel instead that they want to love more They want to be more at peace. They want contentment. They want to help others. They want to ease the way for others. They want to protect life in one way or another. And those are also talents. Those are talents to be developed. Almost all of us find as we become older that we may not decide to go to school or we may not decide to go into a new livelihood or whatever it might be. But that it is endemic, important, absolute in our lives to hear the call to love more, to pursue peace more, to ease the way for ourselves but mainly for others that are within our reach too and that these things are late blooming also in most of us because the time comes when you cross a line I call it crossing the crone line as you cross a line and you realize that your life will be less and it will be smaller without those that it's like the final blossoming it's like the new fruit on the old tree that is the sweetest because it's based in love and mercy,
0: peace. CP, I want to ask you one question about something that I think stops many people, I've seen this in my own life and many other people's lives, from fully coming into their blossoming, which, as you mentioned, is this fear of rejection and humiliation. If someone has that fear, I'm afraid, and I think we all do, but this is the thing that's stopping me, what can they do? It depends on where the fear originates. You have probably met
1: people, I have too, who have had wonderful childhoods. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm delighted when pe- I meet people who do. It's it's like meeting a person from an alien planet <laughs> to me. But... Um, they often are... It was like at the Academy Awards the other night where one of the people who won an award said that their parents always encouraged them to be different, always encouraged them to follow their, you know, bliss, so to speak, as Joseph Campbell said. Always, you know, was ready and waiting to give them resources to try out their next favorite invention of some sort. And what I really loved about what that person said was they looked right into the camera and they said, and so I want to say to you if you have not had parents like this, I'm saying this to you now. Go ahead, invent, create, go do it all. That was the essence of what that person said. I thought that was so beautiful, oh, so bountiful from a person who had been given so much and turned right around and gave it to others who he recognizes not being able to have that because their childhoods are long over now. But that, Something in us keeps listening for people to anoint and bless us on our way. And that's what he did. He blessed and anointed anyone who has the heart to listen to him, who's still longing to hear that it's all right to create, it's all right to look different, it's all right to be the same as. It's all right. Whatever it is that brings your gifts to life makes your life larger allows you to reach and touch others within your reach. Those are all good, good things that something in our psyche is waiting to hear. Some people, too many I'm afraid, have had just the opposite experiences when they're little children, when they are porous, they're wide open, they take in everything, good, bad, neutral, they take it all in and unfortunately poison goes in so much easier when you're young than when you're older and more experienced. So many people have messages in their minds still from early childhood that say things like, don't be important, don't make a scene, don't draw attention to yourself, don't have crazy ideas, don't move, don't dance, don't wiggle, don't jiggle, don't this, don't that... Uh, or, yes, it's all right for you to create, but only this. Uh, you have to do it, but you must have a degree to do it. Or, you must do it, but you shouldn't have a degree to do it. Or, it, whatever it is, is building a dam on the headwaters of the river. So, some people fear, now, as adults, and, and teenagers as well, they fear to make a move that's not pre-approved. And what has to happen is to listen to people like the dangerous old woman, (laughs) listen to people who are good teachers, listen to people whose hearts are truly filled with love, and I would say preferably people who are carrying some scar tissue, because they know, they truly know, they didn't learn it out of a book or imagine it out of the sky. To listen to what they say and replace those old messages in your head with their messages, with life-giving messages, And to believe, my grandmother used to say, listen to me now, believe me later. (laughs) 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 To believe what's being told to you. And at some point just stop saying, yeah, but but my mother mother said, but yeah, but my father, but yeah, but my aunt said, but yeah, but my teacher said, if I believed what my teachers told me, God bless them, if I believe what some of my teachers told me when I was a child, I will be in pieces still. I oh, would never have been assembled as a human being, a ser humano. Oh, it would have just been a shambles. and Not that I wasn't for a while, because children take it hard when you criticize them and hurt them. They take it hard when you tear up their creative work or burn it, or throw it away. And that's their, you know, what we call a self-object. A self-object is something that is important to us, We might have made it or someone gave it to us or maybe we found it like in the woods in nature and it means a great deal to us but to someone else it just looks like a stone on the windowsill. When I visited Georgia O'Keefe, when I lived in Taos and she lived in Abiquiu, I was told that I couldn't see her because she didn't see people like me who were unimportant. I was 19 years old. I had just moved from my little town of 600 people to Chicago and then to Taos, New Mexico, and when I saw her paintings—the paintings of white flowers and pelvises that you could see the desert from—I I was flabberg- I, I was stunned. I was, it was like lightning struck. I was, oh my God, so beautiful. I want to know this person. Who? Who painted it? Who? And it turned out that she lived not very far away. she was an old woman she was well not old really she probably was in her late 70s but at the time I thought she was ancient And so uh, a gallery dealer who dealt with her on a regular basis was going up to see her and I begged to be taken with and oh no 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 no. you can't go no no it's not possible you are no 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 Miss O'Keefe doesn't see people like you and uh she painted paintings that were already sold at that point people she had a long waiting list of people who took the painting that she just produced and if they decided not to take it then they went to the end of the list that was hundreds of people along so they go wait until she died and they maybe would never buy one of her painting anyway so that was the (laughs) that was the scheme at that time so i wrote her a letter i was so taken with her um Something I don't know why. I wrote her a letter, and I wrote it on magenta-colored paper, paper because that's the color paper I bought at the five and ten cent store that was on sale. That I really loved the color of, and so I wrote on it with black ink. And I said, Miss O'Keefe, they tell me that you don't see people, that you don't like people, that you're very temperamental, that almost nobody can get close to you. But I don't believe that because I've seen your paintings. You're in love. With the universe. You're in love with humanity. You're in love with nature. Anyway, I just wanted you to know that I just, your work is beatific. And I signed it with my name. And I mailed it to Abiquiu, which you don't even need an address. Abiquiu was so small at the time that only Miss O'Keefe and a few other people lived there. In about a week, I got back a letter from Miss O'Keefe. She said, There is great merit to maintaining certain myths about one's life. You come see me anytime. Honk the horn at the driveway and my gardener will let you in. Oh my goodness. Oh! I was so... Oh my goodness. I, I think I was like irradiated. You know, I became atoms instead of molecules that all held together in a form. Oh, I was so excited. An idea. I did go to see her. And what I saw were her self-objects. Self-objects are things that mean something to you that may mean nothing to anyone else. Her self-objects were bones and stones. She had gone out to the pedernal of those white-faced cliffs near Ghost Ranch. All she had picked up stones and they were on every single windowsill that she had that overlooked the pedernal. And she was enamored of what was contained in pieces of old wood and in stones and in bones that she found in the desert. That in that part of the world, you go walk through the desert and find literally hundreds of bones in a single afternoon. These were her self-objects that gave her comfort. They surrounded her life. They protected her. They were her like, talismans of her creativity. They were an understanding between her and the basic simplicity of the atoms that were in those objects. If someone looked at those and went, oh look, she has stones in her windowsill. So let's clear those out. Those aren't important. This would destroy her soul-psyche connection. This self objects that she had were extension of her own life force. And children are that way too, with the things they create and the things they bring close to them they see them not as that old teddy bear that doesn't have eyes anymore. They see that as that teddy bear who is a former Arctic explorer who lost his sight because of the blinding sun for years and years. Uh, you try to take that little teddy bear away from that child because it's old, it's worn out, it's falling apart, you've washed it ten times, it's not going to make it through the next one. Wa- and the child will be pierced with pain, because it's a self-object, or at least that's one of the phrases that we call it. Some people call that sympathetic magic. I think it's somewhat patronizing to call things in that regard, as though one stands outside the idea that we are connected to each other in so many different ways, atomically, molecularly, energically, uh, psychologically, spiritually. But when I saw Miss O'Keefe had those objects, unless she understood them as living life force, of her own living life force then I understood too what had happened to so many people and still continues to happen to so many people when they're young is they're told that their life force objects don't matter that they're just this thing whatever this thing is rather than the whole story the child has embroidered around that object in order to bring it close to themselves and to not stand outside of it but be with it so Your question was about what to do about fear of rejection, fear of being ridiculed. And it goes back, I think, in part to self-objects. Begin to replace messages in your mind with messages of goodness that actually come from people who know, la que sabe, one who knows, rather than people who don't know what the heck they're talking about. Secondly, surround yourself with self-objects. Think about what gives you comfort and juice. What... When you look at it, you go, oh man, that, you know, I have a purple piece of metal in my drawer that I don't know where it came from. Somewhere in my travels over the years since flea market somewhere, I picked up this piece of piercing blue violet metal and every time I look at it, my heart soars. There is something about the color of it, the sheen of it, the depth of it, the radiation of it that lifts my heart, I go, I feel happy. And for me, that's a self-object. For other people, they look at them and go, what is this scrap of metal? We'll throw it away. This means I can't use it for anything. But for me, the color of it is perfect to something, matches something inside of me that lifts my heart. Oh, what it is, I can't explain exactly. And I don't want to, really, because... It's like asking a bird to explain how it flies. Uh, It just takes joy in flying. So that's another way. Another way is to, of course, look at the source and learn more, educate yourself more about jealousy and envy that comes from other people. Because so much of ridicule and scorn is actually envy. That you are different, unique, while they're all tied up in their girdles, <laughs> so to speak, in their circle-stitched bras, you know, and they have to conform to a certain shape <laughs> or else. Uh, so there is often ridicule and scorn when you are seeming like a competitor who's going to knock them off their ill one or sorely one pedestal. Um that you're going to somehow exceed them or show them up because they're playing by the rules and you are not learning about the true force of envy, which is essentially a a vulgar kind of love of accomplishment rather than a soulful love that creates in order to pour forth, will help to free you from feeling so wounded that someone criticizes you. There is critique, of course, that's valuable, but I will tell you most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, is delivered because the person wants your life to be bigger rather than smaller. They do not choose or want to wound you, so you are disabled by the criticism. They literally want you to blossom even more. And those are people to listen to, but most often they're filled with great love. They're, they're, um, constitution is to love not to criticize and in those that their constitution seems to be to criticize only you can probably be sure that they're unhappy in other areas of their life that are significant so gradually i don't believe we can ever become so armored that we don't feel uh, pain and i don't think we should but we can qualify it and say, "Does this person qualify in my pantheon of who has a right to criticize me, <laughs> of who is helpful to me and who is not, you know of who cares about my work, or my ideas and who does not care at all, of who is, you know, destructive to not just me, but to others of like kind?" And you learn to qualify what to let in and what to leave out. And this is
0: part of maturing as a gifted person. C.P.E., there's so much more I'd like to talk to you about and that we could talk about, and hopefully we'll get another opportunity at some point. But to end our conversation, you mentioned this idea of the power of blessings and what it means to receive a blessing from someone who believes in you, someone who can see the potential for your giftedness, the possibilities, the ways that it can express itself. And I'm wondering two things. One, if you can just talk about how it is that you see that blessings work, why it is they're so powerful, and then if we could end on the note of receiving a blessing.
1: Yes. Oh, that's really good. Thank you, Tammy. um, In holy words, Greek, Hebrew, Arabic but every holy word book in the world, the Poo which is Maya, the blessing that is withheld from the hero or the heroine is deleterious, so that uh, in the Holy Bible, for instance, in the Hebrew holy Bible, there's a story about the sons, and the father refuses to bless one of the sons. In fairy tales, which are a kind of scripture of their own, there are often the three sons or the three daughters, or as in Shakespeare in King Lear, the three daughters, who are refused blessing unless they act a certain way. And in all the stories, the patriarch or the matriarch or whoever the heck it is who's supposed to be doing all the blessing freely and generously is self-centered in some way. I was saying, no, 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 you have to please me, you can't develop yourself, you have to please me and me alone, and whoever is the one who pleases me, then will receive the blessing. That is an evil way to live. That is not even close to what humans are made of. That is a injured human who withholds blessings from other people. Let me just put it this way. It's like, if you sprinkle water on people, which is part of a Buddhist blessing, for instance, or even part of a Catholic blessing, if you sprinkle holy water that you've blessed onto people in order to bless them, it will fall on everyone equally. On some will see it as, Ah, oh, this, this feels refreshing. This feels divine. This feels so good. This energizes me. Other people go, Eh, I got wet. I don't like it. I'll give me a Kleenex. I want to wipe off. Different people receive blessings different ways, but I can guarantee that gifted people are waiting for the blessings over and over again. And that's why I always think of people when I create poetry or stories or I write, because I know that blessing is nourishment for the soul. The ego might do all sorts of things with a blessing, but the the blessing means... I wish you well on your way. I do not occlude or obstruct you. I wish for you the best of yourself, that you be safe, that you be kept from harm, that you be able to unfurl your truest potential, your truest soul in life, this day, this moment, and that you be watched over and come back safely to me always. That, That's the essence of blessing. You are a good worthy person who is loved and cared for and I will watch as you cross the bridge till you're safely on the other side and I will wait for you till you come back home again
0: beautiful I've been speaking with Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes about her new work which will be launched as an online event series a six part online event series on the dangerous old woman Myths and Stories of the Wise Woman Archetype and it will begin on April 6th. CPE, thank you.
1: Oh, thank you, Tammy. Thank you so much. Your questions are so good and I'm hoping so much that all the dear, brave souls will come to the fireside with me and you and the dangerous old woman and that we will have our Meeting again of the Tribe of the Sacred Heart, and for many of us, Scar Clan. Adios.
0: Adios. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.